Well, would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, chapter 11? Um, just thinking back to Alan's sermon from chapter 10 last week, there were so many great things uh, from his sermon uh, that I hope you were blessed by. If you haven't heard it, if you weren't here, it's online at our Sovereign Grace Church website, and I would really encourage you to hear it. But it also made me so thankful that God has given our church a plurality of elders. Aren't we glad about that? I mean, it's just so exciting um, to be able to, whether, whether Alan is preaching or Hugh is preaching or Eric is preaching or I am preaching, isn't it great to have a church that's not dependent upon the personality or gifting of one man, but is dependent upon God's word? That's what we want for your future. That's what we want for your future. And I, you know, I've told you last week again, there's so many things that just, I'm sitting there listening as someone who needs the word just like you do, but I'm also sitting there listening, thinking about your future, your children's future, as I hear Alan or, or Eric or Hugh preach. And, and we so want to prepare you for a time that we'll never see. We so want to prepare you to be faithful in God's word and God's mission to make disciples uh, beyond a time that we'll ever know about. And that's what my dad did. I think I told you, he... He said that he, you know, he wanted to talk to me about, about his will because he wanted to prepare me with resources to live in a time that he would never see. And so I wished I could leave you in my will. <laughs> you can have a car and you can have a car. But it would be, you can have a potato chip. If I left you in my, I don't know what I would have much to leave you. And my kids might have something to say about that as well. Um, but what does a pastor, what does a pastor, what can he leave if he was leaving an inheritance for a church? What should pastors leave? Well, other young men who are faithful in God's word. Other pastors who are gospel-centered. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the inheritance that a pastor should leave the church in every generation we leave you with people like Alan, men like Alan and, and Eric. You, you and I probably shouldn't be including ourselves in the young men anymore. Um, but it's just a joy, you guys. It's just a joy to see God positioning our church for a future dependent upon the word and not any one pastor. Just a joy. Just a joy. Um, and it's just a joy to think of Alan preaching today to our church family in Pearland as well, as, Aaron, as Eric had mentioned. Um, so last week in the sermon on Daniel 10, you remember we got a behind-the-scenes look at spiritual warfare. Um, and that the spiritual warfare that was going on, you guys, spiritual warfare, this is big. I told the team this week that I think we would serve you well if between Daniel and our study in Revelation that we took just a few weeks to talk about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. I think that would be just a helpful thing for us right now. So many times when we talk about spiritual warfare, it, it's, it's often presented from, well, not a very gospel-centered worldview sometimes. And, and we think that would serve your souls well. We got a chance to look behind the scenes at the spiritual warfare that is always going on, but not just to mess up your day. The spiritual warfare that's always going on because there is, there, 
because all hell is turned loose to stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what spiritual warfare is mainly about. And that's what we saw in Daniel 10 last week. Well, this morning we're going we're gonna to go further because the angel that was giving Daniel this picture of behind the scenes and what was going on behind the scenes, now today he's going to talk to us about, about the prophecy that he gives to Daniel about the next some 300 plus years. Um, so when we read, here's what I'm, I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to read this. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're a Bible scribbler, you know, if you like to outline, take notes in your Bible, would you do this as I read this morning? I think it would be helpful for you if you circled the following words or phrases. Circle phrases like this. Will arise. Will rise up. Will make himself strong or become strong. And then circle these words. They shall not stand. They shall fail. They shall fall. And even circle the little, the little word but, because it's going to be repeated many times in this passage about what, what unbelieving pagan leaders want to do, but could not do. And why? Because God is sovereign over all. So it's, this is going to be a very historical sounding reading. But I think if you're listening and looking at it with intentionality, you're going to already begin to sit up and be at attention about the sovereign God who has a plan for his people and the advancement of his kingdom. So could you join me as we read in Daniel chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he had become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with a great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, hang on, my... my Bible version just gave me a ton of maps in between the texts. I didn't realize that. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but have to return to his own land. 
His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come, and he shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies." In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. (laughs) Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he turns his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, and then he shall turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who will se- will, shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even even the prince of the covenant." And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings... Their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. Welcome to the United Nations. I just had this picture of just just even our times. Speak lies at the same table. For the end is yet to be at at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. 
For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Heavenly Father, that's a mouthful. Um, Would you help us to understand why you inspired this text? Can you help us to understand the amazing prophecy that this was to Daniel and the amazing history it is to us to convince us afresh that you are in control and that you've called us to live on an unstoppable mission for the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom. Please speak to us, Lord. Change us as we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Occasionally, I I do a marriage conference called The Gospel According to Marriage. I often use a video clip of a husband and wife who are having a conversation at the dinner tables, just the two of them. Kids have already been put to bed. And, and it starts off just like so many husband-wife conversations do, just very innocent. And uh, the wife brings up the topic of vacation. And just to talk about where, do you, where should we go on vacation this year? And she says, she volunteers the first suggestion. She says, you know what, I'd like it if we could go see my dad and mom. It's been a while since we've seen them. It's been a while since they've seen the grandkids. And I just think, you know, they've had health issues this year. And I, I just, you know, I know we don't have them for forever. And, and I think we should go see them. And then she just pauses and there's this awkward silence. The husband's just kind of looking at her and looking down and looking at her. And finally he says, that doesn't sound like vacation to me. He said, when we go see your parents, it's tense. It's always tension. There's always tension. And, and I need to rest. I need to take a break. We need to go to the beach. Not to see your family. We need to go to the beach. And so here we go, right? It's just, it was just so true to life and so true to marriage. And, and they just, it just the tension between them gets worse and worse. And they go farther and farther apart rather than reconciling. And finally, it just ends with, with the raised voices and you know, cries of you being insensitive and selfish and all these things that we can unfortunately do to each other. And the wife says, well, let, let's, let, we can't settle this now. Let's just go to bed. And the husband does this. The husband just, it, I'll be honest with you, I want to slap this husband. The husband just does this. Just shoes her off. You, you go to bed. 
she's just now she's weeping. She goes off to bed, and the husband is left. And the final scene is him shaking his head, and he says these words: "Why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be so hard?" When was the last time that question entered your mind? Why does this have to be so hard? So often, marriage can have that feel, doesn't it? So often, marriage can be, why is it that this has to be so hard? Parenting, why does it have to be so hard? Your work, why why does it have to be so hard? COVID, the health issues, politics, why does it have to be? so hard. In Daniel 10, we saw Daniel utterly discouraged and despairing. And God opened a wide door for us to look at what was going on behind the scenes. You know, Daniel was despairing because it really seemed like, okay, happy days are here again, right? Uh, Cyrus was opening the door for the exiles to, to leave Babylon, to leave the that they're, they're no longer prisoners of war. And we get to go back home to Jerusalem. We get to go home and restore the temple. We get to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Oh, happy days are here again. And then a few years pass, and hardly anything's happening again. People are apathetic again. Pagan governments are pagan governments again. Opposition to God and his people are taking place again. And if anyone on the face of the earth could have said, why does it have to be so hard? It was Daniel, for sure. We learned that one of the reasons it's so hard is that we're not just wrestling with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces in heavenly places. We learn that Satan and his demons are fighting tooth and nail to keep God's plan of redemption from happening. Listen, we don't want to make too much of demons. There's not a demon behind every bush. But we also don't want to be naive and make too little of them biblically. And so I think Daniel gives us such a great window into an appropriate view of spiritual warfare Uh, It's important, precious ones, to understand that spiritual forces of wickedness are focusing their efforts uh, on preventing the advancement of the gospel. They're not just trying to mess up our day. Just as we've sadly privatized Christianity as just being about God and me, I think that's when, when, when you've heard teaching on spiritual warfare, sadly, it just ends up being about just... God and you, or just the devil and you. And it's just about you, and it's just about them getting in the way of what you want. That's not what we see in the scriptures. We can't privatize Christianity that it's just about me and God. It's, that's just not the gospel. It, thank God it is personal. It is redemptive. It is glorious. I'm a son. He's a father. That's awesome. But it's about something so much bigger than me, isn't it? It's about something so much bigger than you. It's about God inviting us to participate with him in spreading the good news of salvation to every people group on earth so that on that day when we stand around the throne, it's not just me and God, is it? It's people from every ethnicity singing, praise him from whom all blessings flow. 
Well, we can't do that. We can't just make it about me and the devil either. It's not just about you and God. It's not just about you and the devil. It's about the glory of God being revealed in the gospel. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard, especially when you set your heart to follow hard after the Lord. Listen, the person who's living a life of apathy, you know why it's hard for them? They're not concerned about, I mean, listen, I get so convicted. Sometimes I just, I will wake up and I'll think, when was the last time I shared the gospel on the streets of Midland? When was the last time I shared the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Christ? I go, oh my goodness. I think, I think so many believers live that kind of life, or at least so-called believers live that kind of life. You think the demonic world has to do, put, do, put, invest much effort in that person at all. Their life is hard because they're living an apathetic, probably compromising and disobedient life. That's why their life is hard. But for the, those who follow the Lord, it's hard, isn't it? Because there's increasing warfare and pressure that comes against those who want to see God glorified in the expansion of the gospel. One other thing to notice. Did you notice that Daniel wasn't just rebuking the spirits of territorial spirits? Did you, did, did you notice that he wasn't, the, the angel said, here's the key to spiritual warfare. Rebuke the spirit over Persia. Rebuke the spirit over... Daniel wasn't even aware there was such a thing as spirits that were at war and these angels and demons fighting and all of this kind of stuff. You know what that teaches us? That just our prayers, our prayers that say, God, please make me a witness of the gospel today. Help me to, help me to be an example of the gospel to my wife and to my kids and to my grandgirls. Help me to be an example of the gospel to my church family. Help me to be an example of the gospel to this next door neighbor and that next door neighbor. Help me to be an example of the gospel to my, to my supervisor or the people I supervise, to my teacher or to my coaches. Oh God, help me to be an example of the gospel and to not be surprised that it's hard. And to not be surprised that there is a spiritual warfare element that comes when we set our hearts to give God glory and to see that other people be saved. So, this morning our main point in Daniel 11, so Daniel 10 just says, there's a vision I want to tell you. While he tells about spiritual warfare first, then he says, there's a vision I want to tell you. Daniel 11 is the vision. So this is in your notes. The main point this morning is that Daniel 11 prepares us for difficult days by reminding us that God is in control to protect us from compromise and to equip us to know and obey God faithfully and courageously. And I think you'll see that in the text. Now, before I go on, you know, you know, you know we're, we're continuationists here. We, we believe that God still speaks in very timely ways. Kind of that, that you know, when, when somebody shares something, a scripture with you or a word of encouragement and you go, you just read my mail. That's, that's, what, that's what happens so often in terms of, of New Testament prophetic ministry. It's rooted in scripture, but it's delivered at such a timely moment in your life that you just wonder, I've not told anybody about this. How did you know about it? Well, I, I didn't know. God knew about it, and God loves you. And I just had this sense this morning that this sermon this morning 
God wants it to be a personal word of ministry to those who, who are seeking to live a godly life. You're wanting to advance the gospel. You're, but there are things happening in your workplace. Certainly there are things happening in government. But it's, it's just the feeling that it's so futile because there are things happening that are outside your control. You're doing everything you know to do. And yet it's still really, really hard. And God's wanting to show you this morning. He is so lovingly in control. You don't have to take a breath. You don't have to be in control. <laughs> Isn't that great news? You don't have to be in control. God is in control. And I think, I, I hope you'll see that in the text. But I just felt like I'm not, just, you know, I need to share that this morning. If that is you, I'd love to pray with you after, after the service. Um, so let's, let's unpack this. So the first point is this morning is to put your hope in God being in control, not in governments being in control. And it's just sad. As much as I don't want to do it, it's just such a gravitational pull to put our hope uh, in political leaders figuring everything out. <laughs> uh, our hope in political leaders, you know, coming up with these answers that are going to really be for the flourishing of our country. And that, that's our hope. And it's really, there's, there's principles there that should be happening uh, for the good and godliness of others and all of that. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care about earthly kings or kingdoms or governments. But it's that we don't put our ultimate hope in what President Biden is doing, or, if, or before Biden, in what President Trump was doing, or whoever comes after Biden. We don't put our ultimate hope in them for peace or happiness or prosperity. And we're not to fear them. We're not to fear them. I don't know this week, if some of you, when you, you were just watching issues, whether it's about COVID or mandates or the vaccines or, or Afghanistan or the Taliban or I don't know what, or, or you're concerned about your children and what they're learning in school and it just is so tempting to be afraid. The Lord would say, don't be afraid. They're not in control. Kings are fickle and fragile and fleeting. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 2 says, Daniel, I'm going to show you the truth. And the truth, he's not talking about just, in, just scripture by itself. He's, he's saying, I want to tr- show you the truth about my sovereignty and my unstoppable plan to redeem a people for myself. So what God is revealing to Daniel is a very detailed prophecy. And now we get to read it as a very detailed history. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a cool thing. Uh, and it's a fulfillment of the prophecy. So we get to be able to go, this is wild. Look at, for three, this, this covered some 300 years. And, and it was prophesied to Daniel in advance. And now we're looking at it on this side of Christ and his cross. And we look back and go, wow, God, you're awesome. You, just as precise as the prophecy was, the fulfillment was just as precise. That is just so awesome. So guys, let's stand at attention at the miracle of this. God gave such a specific prophecy that was so specifically fulfilled in history so he could show your heart that he is in control of every earthly king and every earthly power. 
and, and to show us how unstoppable his plan is to redeem a people for his own glory through salvation in Christ. So it doesn't matter what demons are trying to do to stop it. It doesn't matter what world powers are trying to do to stop it. It's unstoppable. So let's unpack this. I'm not going to go into... It, this could be a very, very long sermon if we really just verse by verse unpacked it all. Uh, it's worth it. It's worth it. And I encourage you to do it. But let, I'm just going to hit some high points along the way. So in verse 2, we learn that three more kings are going to come after um, Cyrus. We're going to follow Cyrus. And that's going to be followed by a fourth king named Xerxes. He would be an amazing fundraiser. And he would eventually gather so much money and military that he thought he could attack and defeat the Greeks. But he would be defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis. Verse 3 goes on and it says, A mighty king rises after that that shall rule with great dominion and do whatever he wills. Well, that king, so if you want to put this in your margin, that was Alexander the Great. Verse 3 is about Alexander the Great. So I want you to notice, because, because this chapter is not just about, you saw again, the king of the north, the king of the south, the king of the north, the king of the south, right? It's not just about kings, it's about the king of kings. That's what this, this chapter is about, so let's don't lose sight of that. And because it's about the king of kings, I just thought this was kind of funny. That here's Alexander the Great, who I, I, I had it in my notes and I took it out. The amount of territory he conquered in the span of about 13 years is boggling. Because he didn't have the threat of nuclear weapons or anything like that. It was boggling. He was one of the greatest military leaders and military minds ever. So there could be a thousand things said about him. He gets one verse in this passage. <laughs> Alexander, you're not so great. Not compared to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He just gets one verse. Verse 4 then takes place. And did you notice it says, As soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. Again, this is prophecy that was specifically fulfilled. Alexander had two sons. Both were murdered. And his kingdom became ruled by four of his generals. Uh, Cassander ruled over Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lysimachus ruled over Thrace and Asia Minor. Seleucus ruled over Syria. And Ptolemy ruled over Egypt. That was the four kings. But in verses 5 through 20, particular focus is just given to two rulers. The king of the north, and that's Syria. And the king of the south, and that's Egypt. So, here we go. This is going to be about betrayals and failed marriages and marriage alliances and backstabbings, invasions and defeats, um, governments drenched in evil. And all of this is being specifically prophesied in advance. And all of this was specifically fulfilled in history because God is in control. Verses 5 through 9, at first the southern kingdom is stronger, but a lust for power is never satisfied. Why should we be surprised? We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. We don't have to look past our own heart. And we just feel like we got a little edge in an argument we're having with our spouse, but we have to turn the knife a little bit, right? We, it's just, that's not enough. It's not enough for me to win the argument. You need to bow down and think I'm awesome. Oh, we, we can do it ourselves. It's never satisfied with what it has. 
It tries to more dominate. And, and that's what was going on. The southern kingdom is stronger, but it's seeking to more, more than dominate the northern kingdom. This time not by war, but through a marriage alliance. Bernice was the daughter of the king of Egypt, and they had her be married to the king of Syria. These two kings had a bloody war for years, and they agreed to end it with this marriage alliance on condition that the king of Syria would divorce and put his, away his wife, Laodicea, and her children. <laughs> and he did it. It was also agreed that Bernice would bring this giant amount of money to her new husband. And so all things appeared to go on for a little while. But the king of Syria grew tired of his new wife and recalled. That's what the historians have worded. Ladies, wouldn't you? And so he recalled his old wife. <laughs> what? He recalled his former wife, Laodicea, and her children. And she was really happy about that. But remember, she was a scorned woman, right? So just to make sure the king would never do that again, she had her husband poisoned. <laughs> so, so she comes home. And she poisons him, and she murders um, and she uh, murders Bernice and her children. Verse eleven: Some time passes, and new kings are in place, both to the north and the south. And again, remember, I say all that. This was prophesied and specifically fulfilled. Why? Because God's in control. These earthly kingdoms rise and fall. They won't accomplish what, what they threaten us with. We don't need to be afraid. Keep that in mind with all of this. So some time passes and new kings are in place in both the north and the south and war begins to rage again. The king of the south is, has now changed. So now we're getting some generations of kings passed down and he wins a giant battle against the king of the north. The, the king of the north loses 17,000 men in one battle alone. Verse 13 and 14. Here's, here's something to be just a, a sympathetic about. So, Israel is directly between Egypt and Syria. And so they're constantly just being invaded and overrun and invaded and overrun. So remember how Daniel, why is this so hard? We've sent some people back to restore the temple and to rebuild and, and to seek the glory of God. But you've got these two warring nations. So I was telling you that some of you feel like I'm just struggling because there's things happening that are outside my control and it's, it's affecting my income and it's affecting my family. And it's, Israel knows how you feel because Egypt and Syria are just warring and warring and warring and Israel's standing between them going... It just seems like things are so out of control and we're not, we're not inviting these things. But God is in control. How could they ever restore the temple and their own nation and, and prepare to welcome the Messiah if they're just a pawn between these kingdoms? Do you ever feel like you're just a pawn in some horrible chess game between, of, of, of evil, amongst evil? In verse, four, verse 14, we see some Jews were so tired of this that they joined in with the northern kingdom to try to provide themselves some relief against the southern kingdom. Guys, that would have been like Jews signing up to serve with Hitler before the Holocaust. That's what this is saying. Some theologians wonder if they didn't read the prophecy in Daniel and, and just tried to fulfill it by their own strength. Maybe, okay, I think we see what God's doing here. Now let's try to do it ourselves. 
rather than doing God's work in God's way. Precious ones, earthly power can never destroy God's kingdom, but earthly power can also never establish God's kingdom. And that's important. I, can't, I just try to think of application. Just it really strikes close to home. How many times do husbands and wives try to change each other? And we do it in the name of Jesus. But we're really trying to make them change. Earthly power can't establish God's, God's work. Only the power of God in the gospel, in God progressively transforming our lives so that we can be an appropriate witness, so that the change, that, the change, that we're more passionate about our changing, not our spouse changing. So earthly power can never destroy God's kingdom or establish it. Verse 16, Antiochus III of Syria is risen up and permanently takes possession of what's called the beautiful land in the text, which is Israel. And when he comes into Jerusalem, he's welcomed as the deliverer of the Jewish people. And he's only setting the stage for the, for the Jews to be horribly persecuted by the son that would follow him. Verse 17 Syria had this brilliant idea to, here we go, a marriage alliance again. Hello, that didn't work last time. Why are you going to try it again? But Syria had a brilliant idea to have his, uh, the king of Syria, have his daughter uh, marry the king of Egypt. Uh, her name, here we go, Cleopatra. Cleopatra. Now, it wasn't the Cleopatra that was the mistress of Caesar and uh, Mark Anthony. She's going to come about 150 years later, but this was the Cleopatra who would then now be giving her name to future queens of Egypt. So listen, moms and dads, is your, I never knew that in my history books. I read about Cleopatra. I didn't know that you could actually find some reference to Cleopatra in your Bible. Isn't that cool? That's Oh, that is so cool. Why? Because God is in control. How many times that we just look at history and we thought it was all boring and this and that. and Oh my goodness, look at that. God is in control. I'm going to give you another historical figure in just a minute as well. Well, so guess what happens? Instead of Cleopatra being faithful to her dad, so the dad's thinking, it's like the Trojan horse, I'm, I'm, I'm planting my daughter in their kingdom in order to destroy it, right? <laughs> so, you know what happens? Cleopatra actually falls in love with her husband. <laughs> it is hilarious. And she sympathizes with her new Egyptian husband and forsakes her father. And she becomes pro-Egyptian in her political views and the wars just continue. Well, Antiochus III doesn't give up and he keeps trying to find a way to extend his kingdom and defeat Egypt Enter Hannibal. Anybody remember Hannibal? Hannibal, yes, that Hannibal. The Hannibal who led the Carthaginian army and a team of elephants through southern Europe and through the Alps against the Romans. That Hannibal. He joins forces with Antiochus III and his plan to pick a fight against Greece. Rome wanted him to, uh, warned him, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. And even though Antiochus's army was twice as big as the Roman army. Rome horribly defeated them. And they punished him by charging huge taxes and tribute, so much so that Antiochus, the king of Syria, went broke and he had to start robbing pagan temples to pay the taxes and tribute that he owed. And he, he entered one temple, one pagan temple, and he was getting, starting to steal all their gold and silver. And, and their worshippers just had it and they killed him. He had two sons, 
the older ones now on the hook for the taxes and tribute, he heard that the temple in Jerusalem had a lot of treasure in it. So much so that it could pay off Rome. And so he sends his representative to plunder the temple. And the representative, guess, the, guess look, guys, God's always working behind the scenes in your life. Trust him. That representative had a horribly frightening vision of warrior angels telling him, you touch the temple and you die. So that representative says, no way, Jose. He comes back to Antiochus and he just tells him he doesn't have any jewels or treasures or temple uh, uh, bowls and all the elements of the temple to come. And he's so mad that Antiochus put him in that position that he poisons, I mean Antiochus' son, he poisons the son. Well, that left one other son. And we've heard of him before. His name is Antiochus IV. We've heard of him in, in chapter 8 as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's taken as a hostage back to Rome. He's raised as a prisoner of war by the Romans. Guys, all of that to say, prophecy, 300 years of prophecy was, was fulfilled specifically in history. I, I wish there was a way I could try to express it to you. It would be like Daniel extending the prophecy further to include our time by saying about, um, uh, that, about our country, that one of the leaders shall rise up out of the theater and exercise great power to tear down a wall between nations. Who am I speaking about? Reagan, Reagan, yeah. It'd be like Daniel saying that two giant birds of war flew into buildings that touched the sky and tore them to the ground. 9-11. It'd be like saying another leader would come along who was loud and bold and proclaim peace to the Middle East, all with a head of orange. <laughs> See, and I'm not just trying to be funny. God's word is that specific about 300 years of him ruling and reigning over every earthly power. That's how specific it is. And he's followed by an old and frail and forgetful leader who appears weak to other nations. That's how specific that God's, if, if he were going further than just this 300 to 400 year time span, the prophecy and historic fulfillment remind us that God's in control when even when everything looks out of control, and I hope you'll remember Daniel 11. Every time, so this week, there's going to be crises that are coming up on your website and on your, your, your things. <laughs> your phones, your laptop, your pads, your whatever. There's going to be this and that. And I hope you'll remember Daniel 11. That with every crisis, with every government overreach, with every economic or military setback, God is in control. This should be great comfort for you, especially when you've been really weighed down by being beaten up. You feel like you've just been beaten up by things that are outside your control. 
It reminds us to put, not put our hope in earthly powers or kings or governments to provide ultimate prosperity or freedom or happiness, but to fix our hope fully in the Lord for love and life and purpose and ministry and mission. Listen, this isn't just a history lesson either. It's not just prophecy and history. Listen, history is not circular. If there was no God, then probably we could say history is circular. History is linear. God has ordained and knows precisely what is happening. And he does so with your joy and welfare in view. God is moving all of history toward its appointed conclusion. In Daniel, it would be the appointed conclusion of Christ coming the first time to save his people from their sins. And then he's going to come again to establish his eternal kingdom of joy among the people that he loves. So whatever you see in the news this week, please think of Daniel 11 and think that God is moving history. It's moving toward a destination. It's not empty. It's not circular. You're not just a pawn with all of the political stuff going on. The center of the story is not the kings waging war against each other. The center of the story is the sovereign grace of God ruling and reigning to save us from our sins and to use us for his glory. Second point would be this. Fear personal compromise more than public persecution. Fear personal compromise more than public persecution. Here we get Antiochus, Antiochus, he, Epiphanes comes. And he is, in verse 21, called the contemptible person. And he sure was that. And I want to go into as much detail now because we went into that kind of detail earlier in Daniel. Just suffice it to say he was a promise maker, he was a promise breaker, he was a liar. He obtained the kingdom by flatteries or by force, whichever he felt would work the best at any given time. Um, he, would, he would act deceitfully. He would promise you something only to give you nothing, or he would give you something not for your good, but to own you. He sought to unite the north and south kingdoms under, that, under his rule, but it failed. Uh, he, was, he was involved with these evil kings plotting against each other, sitting at the na- same table, but neither one of them could succeed. And the more he failed with other, other governments and trying to win other wars, it seemed like the more angry he got against God and Israel. And so he plunders, verse 28, we get this sense that he's plundered the temple in Jerusalem. He's ravaged the temple. In verse 30, he comes back again. He's more enraged. And it first focuses attention on those. So this is, I hope you notice when we were reading. This is in verse 30. Here's who he's focusing his attention on first. Those who forsake the Holy Covenant. In other words, those who are willing to compromise their faith for fortune. I'm concerned that there's a lot of believers in the United States that are just on that path. I'm so thankful that I don't know that they, I don't think there's many of them here in this room. I'm so thankful. We're so grateful to pastor you. It's one of the greatest privileges and joys that we'll have on this side of heaven is to be your pastors. But I'm concerned. I'm concerned that our kids are growing up in a world where compromising faith is a real option for the fortunes that it could get me in the world. He seduces with flattery those who violate the covenant. Always seeking to seduce 
the Jewish, or in our case, Christian progressives. Have you been hearing that phrase more and more? Christian progressives, Christian progressives, Christian progressives. Guess where it's come from? Daniel 11. It's not new. And it's the Christian progressives that in the name of Jesus are actually compromising Jesus. Verse 31, he profanes the temple. He takes away the burnt offerings. He sets up the abomination that makes desolate. He slaughters up to 50,000 Jews. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. He defiles the temple by placing a statue of Zeus on the altar. He, he commands offerings be made to Zeus. He makes the holy days illegal or they're punished by death. He begins to put human sacrifices on the altar. He forbids keeping Sabbath. He forbids circumcision or be killed. And listen to this. And if, if, a, if a mom and dad had their child circumcised and they found out about it, listen, Big Brother was going on way back when, guys. That wasn't just in our time. And so they had spies all over Jerusalem and Israel. And they're just looking to see who has circumcised their kid. Well, here's what happened. We'd kill the kid. And then they put a rope around its neck and around its feet and hang the dead body over the neck of the mom and then kill the mom. Having, a, having the Torah would be worthy of death. Again and again, horror taking place against God's people. And as bad as this was, the real danger was not persecution. It's not persecution. It's compromising your faith. Moms and dads, please raise your kids to know that. I look back, there's so many things. Oh, I woulda, I woulda, shoulda, woulda, coulda, shoulda, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Thank God for his grace and that he didn't, he didn't hurt my kids with my ignorance or so glad about that. We should be more fearful about personal compromise than public persecution. There will always be a people in the visible believing community that will see compromising our faith as actually being noble. That's the progressives. They will claim that our, our separation and convictions are stumbling blocks to getting along with the world. They're willing to compromise faith and conviction in order to be accepted by the world. They will say this, how can we actually reach the world if we're just telling people there's only one way of salvation? How can we reach the world with that? How can we reach the world if we tell them that, that there's a God of love and yet there's a righteous and eternal judgment for rejecting Christ and his work on the cross? How can, can't we be, listen, if we're going to do it, Let's just, let's keep it to ourselves. Let's, let's believe it. And then let's just fit in. Nobody has to know. That's, that's the atmosphere we're raising children in today. In addressing the issue of compromise, John MacArthur, this is in your notes, he put it this way. We should not be entertained by the sins for which Christ died. Many, instead of being persecuted, chose to compromise their faith, not merely to preserve their lives, but to seek a life of love and satisfaction and prosperity and all the wrong things. Remember, Jesus said, He who seeks to save his life shall lose it. He who loses his life for my sake shall find it. 
Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear the one who will righteously judge your soul and the one who bore the judgment in place. So just I want to ask you this. If we have trouble taking a stand for consistent time to meet with God in prayer and his word, how do you think you're going to take a stand if real persecution comes our way? You're not even taking a stand to meet with the Lord regularly. If we have trouble taking a stand to consistently gather and serve one another in the local church, how do you think we're going to take a stand when persecution comes? If we have trouble taking a stand, how about this, for forgiving others? How are we going to be patient and forgiving or extend grace? Share the gospel with others. If we're not taking a stand for all of that, how are we going to take a stand in persecution? See, that's why I think that this passage is, is not just saying, oh, spooky, <laughs> how horrible. It is horrible. It is terrible. But what's more terrible is you turning away from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to find a spot in the world. You know, that's what's more terrible and it will do far more damage to your heart and soul. How do we take a stand? And that's our last point. Know God. Know God. And the third point is this. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. That's, what, that's just the quote from verse 32. Those who know their God. So what causes us to shine as lights to the world is not how much we try to blend in with the world. It's not how much we know about politics. It's not how much we know about the coronavirus or masks or vaccines. It's not how much we know about our favorite sports team. What makes us shine as lights to the world is that we know God. We know him. We don't know him just academically. We know him relationally. We know him lovingly. We know him humbly. We know him obediently. We know him missionally. These are in your notes. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Sounds like just what we need, doesn't it? It's amazing when you know him. Look at all that comes with that. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Some of you remember A.W. Tozer, and this is, this is the, the longer quote that maybe a lot of us are more familiar with. Uh, take a at this with me. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. 
This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. We need to know his fatherly sovereignty, don't we? We need to know his forgiveness. We need to know his mercy and his grace. We need to know his power. We need to know his wisdom. You guys, our faith in God will never be greater than our knowledge of God. Can I say that again? Especially if, if, you would, would, if, if we were having a cup of coffee and you would say, gosh, I just feel like my faith has been so weak lately. Is your knowledge of God increasing? We sure want to be a part of helping you with that. That's what we're about. That's what the church is all about. All of us have those feelings. So are we helping each other grow in a knowledge of God? How about this? Our obedience to God will never be greater than our knowledge of God. It'll never be greater. Our marriages will never be greater. That's why so many times people get so frustrated because they come to talk about marriage and we talk about doctrine. <laughs> we talk about marriage. We will, and we are. But your marriage will never be greater than your knowledge of God, your knowledge of his love, your knowledge of his patience, your knowledge of his endurance and his steadfast love. How about our kids? Training up our children will never be greater than our knowledge of God. Sharing the gospel will never be greater than our knowledge of God. Psalm 910 is in your verse, in your packet, in your notes. And those who know your name put their trust in you. O Lord, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So there you see it. The more you know God, the more your faith grows. And the more your obedience grows. So Daniel 11.32 goes on to say that those who know their God will stand firm. They'll be strong. They won't be shaken even though the world is shaking around us. The world is shaking, but you won't. And the people who know their God will take action. And there was a sense of prophecy and history even in this. During the days of Antiochus Epiphanes and following, there were faithful people who knew their God and they stood firm for his plan to redeem a people for himself and refused to compromise their faith, even if it cost them their lives. They were led by a Jewish priest named Mattathias, along with his five sons. When Mattathias died, the baton was passed to his son. You may know this name better, Judas Maccabeus who God used to restore and rededicate the temple. And that victory is celebrated year after year. It's the Feast of Dedication, or what's better known as Hanukkah. So that was fulfilled specifically too. Listen, precious ones, taking action. So I don't know when you, when you look at it. They, they who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Because we're West Texans, aren't we? What does that mean to West Texans? Can I tell you, it doesn't first mean grab your guns. Yes, finally, we get to something good. You know, this is great. Listen, there may be a time that that's needed. There may be a time that that's needed. 
But I can at least say this, take action means to live life with gospel intentionality. That's what taking action means. When we wake up, we know we need all the grace we can get to live godly and missional lives. So we turn to the Lord to get it. We take action. We make breakfast for our kids, knowing that they need all the grace and encouragement we can give them. That's taking action. We go to work or school to be lights in the darkness, sharing the gospel in our words and our work. We stop sitting on the sidelines of the church and we get involved in serving and, and we, we care and share with others. We look for the opportunity to share the gospel wherever we go. That's taking action. You can take action today, can't you? Now, will doing all this be that this is happy days are here again? Ooh, I was a little off key there. Sorry. Um, no. How did this passage end? Well, the wise among the people, those who knew their God, they're going to make many understand. Praise God for that. Though for some, they shall stumble by sword and flame. Stumble doesn't mean compromise. It meant that they're, they're forced down by persecution, by captivity, by plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end. It just reminded me of how firm a foundation. I love this, these lyrics. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and the gold to refine. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. Lord, I mean this reverently. It's so cool to study history with you. <laughs> I would have been a way better student in school if I would have seen things this way. But more importantly, Lord, for the hearts of your people in a world that really so regularly seems out of control, it is so encouraging to see that you are completely in control, that you are moving history forward regardless of how stuck we feel in coronaviruses and political warfare and nations, rumors of war. Wow, was this a chapter of rumors of war? Oh my goodness, Lord. It's just so comforting to know that you are moving all these things forward to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and prepare us for his second coming. So until you come, Jesus, you've given us great work to do. Help us to know you better. Oh, we want to know you more. We want to know you more. Deep within our souls, we want to know you. So that we can stand firm. And so that we can take action and live with gospel intentionality in everything we do. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can do just that. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.
it's time, it's time to go. There's a song that came to my heart that, uh, it's a little chorus, and some of it, it won't be, it'll be, it's an old chorus, so it'll be pretty new to a lot of you, but it's, Lord, I want to know you more. Deep within my soul, I want to know you. Lord, I want to know you. And I would give my final breath to know you in your death and resurrection. Lord, I want to know you more. Lord, I want to know you more. Have a great and godly Sunday.